Romans 14, Paul is moving forward here again, addressing these believers in very practical ways. He's talked to them about surrendering their lives, the reasonableness of presenting their bodies as a living sacrifice, of humility, of realizing our place in the body of Christ, of using our spiritual gifts to bless one another, talked about believers in the relationship to human government now. How does that work? What does that look like for us? How it's important for us to pay that debt of love, certainly realizing the time that we're in and not to be asleep to spiritual things. And now he moves into particularly how believers are going to relate to one another in brotherly love when it comes to weak or strong believers, or you could say immature or mature believers. Um, Now, it's possible, again, that Paul had heard some of the issues that were in this church from people that he knew. He knew a number of people that were a part of it. That's possible, but it seems more likely that Paul just knew everywhere he went, the churches that he established and the places that he found believers, this was just one of the major problems. And so he knew this was something that always needed to be addressed. And in every body of Christ, there's going to be believers who are more mature than other believers, and there has to be a right relationship between them. So what Paul says here, beginning in verse 1, is this. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. So Paul here gives us kind of a really summary of his argument that he's going to kind of expound on through the rest of the chapter. And he begins by talking about believers who are weak in the faith. Um, What makes a person weak in the faith is their understanding and application of matters of faith. And so Paul brings that out through this issue of foods, which was big in the early church. If you just asked doctrinally, is it wrong or was it a sin before God to kill animals and eat them? The answer is very simply no. Genesis 9.3 Mark 7.15, Jesus establishes whatever goes into a person's belly doesn't defile him. Acts 10.12, Colossians 2.16, 1 Timothy 4.3-5. It's very clear in Scripture. But the person who was weak in faith didn't have that understanding or conviction. Even though the truth was there, they couldn't hold to it in a real way in the sense that it allowed them to have a clean conscience before the Lord. So they're weak in their understanding of the faith. And the reality is, like how somebody is weak in the faith, faith comes from all different things. First of all, every single one of us starts weak in the faith because we're born into Christ and we know nothing. <laughs> we start as babes in Jesus Christ. So we have to learn. Everybody starts weak in the faith. So There's always going to be people who are just believers that are entering into the faith, that are weak in their faith. Sometimes there are people who are weak in the faith simply because 
they have never been taught. Maybe they've been saved. Maybe they've been a Christian, but they've been given actually very little from the Bible. And they can come into a scenario where they're now being taught the Bible or they start reading the Bible on their own and they begin to realize, man, I have never heard any of these things. How, how come this was never shown to me before? I didn't know the Bible talked about all these different things, how these things connected. And people can be weak in their faith because they don't have the word. They're ignorant of it. They've never been given it. Even if they've been saved for an amount of time, they've never actually been taught the word of God. Sometimes people are weak in the faith because they've come out of twisted places where there's, they're part of some cult or some Pharisaic sect that has taken the scriptures but twisted the things that are true, only emphasized certain things and left out other things. So their hearts cannot connect to biblical truth because that biblical truth has been taken away from them or they've been blinded to it in one way or another. And the same thing, people can come out of different pagan cultures and where the Bible doesn't, where they don't know the Bible speaks about something, they just substitute in kind of their superstition that they came from. And so these superstitious practices are still kind of lurking around in their hearts and places, and their faith is weak in relation to what God has said. So, like, and there's many other ways. The, the picture is just, there will all, in any body of believers, there will always be, and really should always be, other brothers and sisters in Christ who are weak in the faith. Because people are getting saved out of all different types of things. And we're all growing and learning what God says in his word, the whole of it. So uh, Paul knew, especially for these people who nobody was growing up with a Christian background, per se, especially from these Gentile areas. If you came from a Jewish background, at least you had the Old Testament. But all these Gentiles are getting saved. They're just getting saved out of pagan cultures. Their lives were a total mess. And this was all new to them. So there was always this kind of, and then the Jews had that kind of Pharisaic uh, religious bent, and they were relearning things. So there was this mix of people that were getting thrown together. And Paul just knew there was always going to be some issues. There's always going to be some butting in the heads from people who have begun to understand in a mature way certain things in Christ. And others who have begun to just start that direction and their faith isn't strong in certain areas. So what he says right off the bat is, notice, he wants to make it clear what he's saying. These believers are to be, first word, received. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. They're saved. They're born again. They should be received and welcomed in the body of Christ, but they shouldn't be welcomed in the body of Christ to just argue about doubtful things or things that are indifferent or things that really you shouldn't be arguing about. They should be received and welcomed on the things that are central and most important. So to give an example of that and one that was, was going to be very obvious for them in their culture was in relation to food. So he would say right off the bat, verse 2, as an example, for one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak 
eats only vegetables. So a vegetarian by conscience, they came out of these different types of occult practices, some still the Jewish law. There was a, we know from Corinthians, a struggle over this meat could have possibly been sacrificed to idols. So there's different cultural reasons why people just would say, I'm not eating any meat because I might, they're worried I might displease God by doing that. Or they feel like they're more righteous by doing that. And Paul would say, if you feel like you're more righteous before God, by being a vegetarian, you're actually weak in the faith. Now, it has to be said, he's, this is read out loud to the Roman church, and people need to learn this. It wasn't that nobody could ever say that to them. It was simply that that doesn't then become their, their uh, modus operandum in terms of who could come into the church. Do we eat meat? No, you're out. I like that. No, that believer needs to be received where they are. And you need not to receive them to, to have an argue about, to argue now about meat. It is, it is true, yes. They're not more pleasing to God because they're vegetarian. If you're a vegetarian just for health reasons, that's okay. If you're a vegetarian just for pure preference, I don't understand you, but that's fine. Right? There's a reason that vegetarians are always making veggie burgers because the burger is a better thing, so we have to make our version that thing. We don't make, you know, cucumber burgers because the burger's better. So, like, those things are fine. That's all right. There's, you know, you can have a preference in what you like to eat. But the point is, before God, there's a truth there. But this person who comes out of this background for one reason or another, they can't, their faith can't reach up to that truth yet. And what Paul is saying is, so we have to receive that person if we understand that. And verse 3, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. So he's laying out his argument. The temptation for the mature believer is to despise the believer who's weaker in the faith. They don't get this. They're annoying. How come they're pressing this issue? The Bible says this, right? The, the more mature believer, their, their temptation is to despise the less mature believer. The less mature believer's temptation is to judge the more mature believer. That person, look at them. They're eating that. They don't understand how unholy they are, right? There's this there, Paul has seen this. There's a, there's a temptation on each side. Both are wrong, primarily because in all God's servants, it's not our place to judge one another. He says, for God has received him. If they're a son or daughter of God and they struggle with how to eat things that will be most pleasing to God, they're still a son or daughter of God. And in the end, I am not their judge, and I am not going to hold them accountable on that. We can help one another. Again, Paul is teaching them this. We do our best to teach one another. But I'm not going to be the person that they're accountable to in the end. And so that's why Paul says, who are you to judge another servant? He gives kind of a picture. They're not your servant. They're God's servant. 
If I invited you over to my house and I had my children help serve dinner and all you did was sit at the, com- the table and complain about my kids and their service, it would make for an awkward dinner. Right? Like, who, you, who are you to complain about my kids? Right? The, the, the picture here is, no, these are God's kids. And they're doing what they're doing in relation to what he says. So who are you to be their judge or complain about them? We're all his servants. We're accountable to him. We're supposed to receive one another. And you don't want to be found trying to knock down somebody that God is holding up. Notice what he says. To his own master, he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand for God is able to make him stand. So I don't want to be found in a scenario where I'm trying to knock somebody when God is working in them and actually literally holding them up. I don't want to be the immature believer judging the more mature believer who understands more than they do or the more mature believer who just doesn't have time for the immature believer because they're bothering them. And Paul knew this is the world they lived in. So he's going to expand this now. Verse 5, one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives, he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat, and he gives God's thanks gives God thanks. So Paul, again, brings in another topic that he knew was a big deal, another application of this. It was going to be an issue for the churches of the day, which was, what day were they to worship on? Should it be Saturday? Should it be Sunday? Did they still keep the Sabbath? He would talk in Colossians. What about feasts and festivals? In Galatians, he would address the same thing. Do we still keep these various feasts? Whole sections of the church through church history have written off other sections because they don't keep specific church calendars the way they want. This is a big issue. It wasn't that day. It continues to be an issue today. Paul says very clearly, he makes this very evident. He says, one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike in terms of One person really feels like, to honor God, i got to worship him on this day. Another person knows, i got to worship God every day. I can't worship him one day and then forget him the other ones, like like this is a special day. And he says, so what's, what's the end of it? Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, they had already made this clear. We don't keep the Sabbath. Paul could never say that sentence if the Sabbath was still in place. Let each be convinced in his own mind. That, that could never be stated if that was still true. And he just says the person who's observing it, observes it to the Lord. How, how are these matters settled before the Holy Roman Church? No. Before the Lord and his own mind. That's... That's where the matters end up being settled. Paul's exhorting these mature and immature believers to love one another, receive one another as individual servants of the Lord, and to tolerate each other in these doubtful or in different places. He says, if you're observing the day, you're doing it to the Lord. That's the important part. 
the person who eats meat eats meat and then gives thanks to God. They don't give thanks to other human beings. The person who's only eaten vegetables eats vegetables and gives thanks to God. He's the person that they're doing it in front of and before. God is the person that they'll be accountable to. And God's the one who can see that that little spark or coal of life of the Holy Spirit in the person who knows they can worship him every day or the person person who thinks I can only worship him this day because they don't know enough yet. And in both of those people, he wants to stir life. That's the point. And so he's not going to ruin that life by breaking the bruised reed or quenching the smoking flax. The people who could honor God, those uh, mature believers, he sees their hearts as they eat their BLTs, right? Bacon, lettuce, tomato. And he sees the heart of the person that can only eat the LT, you know? Okay, he sees both of their hearts. Both of them are doing their, their best to please him. And one just has a greater understanding than the other. And he's like, I'm receiving both of these. So how can you be in conflict then? You, you need to understand this is before the Lord that this is happening. So he says, as he goes on, for none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. So he says here, how we live our entire lives, we live them to God. I don't live them to other people. I live them before him and to him. My entire life, my eating, my drinking, my worship. And even when I come to death, that is before God in the end. My death, however it happens, is going to be something that glorifies him. Jesus would say of Peter in John 21, 19, this he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. My whole life is his and my death is his. Right? None of us, we don't choose our lives. We could have been anywhere in the world. He put us here. We don't choose the moment we come in. We don't choose the moment we go out. I trust God with the whole thing. I live it before him. And he, as the ultimate picture of this, he says it's for that very end that Christ died, that Jesus Christ, as Lord of all, he battled through this life and death and won his crown, and he still wears it. And he's the only one who did it perfectly. And so he's the Lord of all life, all that are in life and all that are beyond, that are dead. He's the one everybody gives an account to. It's part of the Christian message. It's what they said in the book of Acts, that he is the judge of the quick or the living and the dead. And he will be the judge of the living and the dead. And our job is to recognize Christ's place not only in our life, but also in the lives of others, and now to usurp that place in the lives of other believers. And that can happen by mature believers, again, despising the immature believers as they work through things 
and the immature believers judging the more mature believers about things that they don't yet understand. And so Paul says, you're living your life. That's fine. But you don't live it to yourself. Everything you're doing, how you're eating, how you're drinking, how you're worshiping, every day of your life is lived to God. It's not, it's not in relation to everybody else. God doesn't want me to measure my life off of everybody else or what everyone else is doing. He wants me to put it back in relation to him. And he's going to expound on that. But it's, there's always a pressure to begin to decide and measure our lives with something outside of him. Even if it's a good thing, like the Christian community that I'm in. But that's not where God wants me to live. He doesn't want my my impetus, my decision, my motivation to come from outside. He wants it to come from him, the work of the Spirit in our lives. So he builds on that, and then he asks these two questions, 10 and 11, but why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. These are good questions for us. This is is correction for them. They needed this teaching. But the idea is we're not supposed to coerce or force other people into particular molds that we want them to be. We should ask ourselves... Notice he uses, why do you judge your brother for the immature believer? If, if I got an issue with somebody and I want them to do something or see something, I should literally ask myself, is, is this something the way God judges this scenario? Right? That was the whole problem, that these immature believers were judging the mature ones in a way that God was not judging them. God was okay with them eating meat. And then the secondary question, why do you show contempt for your brother that the mature believers who are getting tired of the immature believers who kept telling everybody they could only eat vegetables were saying to them, like, no, we're tired of you guys, getting annoyed, whatever that looked like for them. But he's saying, is that God's attitude toward those individuals? Is that, is that how the Lord feels toward them? right now because Paul says for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ Paul introduces this doctrine here of the judgment seat of Christ the Greek word is the bema seat of Christ Uh, the word is used some 10 or 11 times in scriptures it's always related to a judgment seat we see Jesus before Pilate Pilate sat on the judgment the bema seat when he was judging Jesus. The word was used with Herod sitting on his judgment seat. Poor Paul gets drugged before numerous judgment seats uh, from all different types of rulers and kings. But the last two times it's used, it's used of Jesus' judgment seat. Here in Romans, in this verse, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. And it's an important doctrine for us because... It's important that we see you and I are one day going to be, he says, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 
we shall all stand in a place where we are personally accountable to him. He's saying, why do you judge your brother? Don't you know we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day? Jesus said in John 5, 22, for the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son. The father is going to judge the world through the son. When human beings get judged, they're not going to be able to look at God and say, you don't know what it's like to live a human life because they're going to look in the face of a man who lived the perfect human life and the one who took the wrath of God. And nobody's going to be able to say, you don't know what sin is like or you don't know what life is like or you don't know what it's like to take a last breath in a human frame. No, he knows everything. And all judgment is committed to him. And the living and the dead are all going to stand before him one day, the saved and the unsaved. Peter says, though, in 1 Peter 4, 17, the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? So Peter says, the first people who are going to be judged, face a judgment, are believers. Then those who obey not the gospel. The Bema seat is a judgment for believers. Only believers will be at the Bema seat of Christ. The white throne judgment is for unbelievers, and only unbelievers will be at that. Everybody who is at the Bema seat of Jesus Christ is saved and going to heaven. But the judgment will be based on your works after salvation whether you are faithful to what God placed into your hands, the time he's given you, the opportunities he's given you, the spiritual gifts that he's given you, the life that he's given you to serve him. So you have my word, you have my spirit, you had these opportunities. And everyone is going to be there, and we're all going to have a personal face-to-face appointment. My wife is not going to be there. My family is not going to be there. My friends are not going to be there. I'm not going to be able to turn around and point my finger at anybody else. It's just me and him. And it's important that we know that day is coming one day. Uh, It's not a popular doctrine because accountability is not a popular doctrine nowadays. It is an important doctrine Because if I live my life now, knowing that I'll stand before him one day, then I will not be afraid to stand before him that day. If I live like it's going to happen now, if I live today like I'm standing before him, then when it happens, I will not be so shocked about it. And the Bible makes it very clear, we're all going to stand before him. It's a balancing doctrine to that of grace. And what I mean by that is, you know, sometimes it could feel like, well, you know, people, once you're saved, you're saved, and it almost doesn't really matter. You're going to heaven. What's the big difference? No, there's a big difference still. And God makes it very clear. There's a great difference. Because he says that there is great reward in heaven. And when he says great, he actually means great. He doesn't blow smoke. He doesn't just act like something's better than it is. And it's a doctrine that is very important because the Bible makes it clear after salvation, everything I do in my body, whether good or bad, is important. 
and nobody's going to escape it. So he's going to build on that doctrine in terms of reward or loss in first and second Corinthians. So we'll get there if God tarries. But as he brings up the doctrine here, he's bringing it in the context of accountability. And what he's saying is, why do you need to judge anybody? Everybody is going to be judged before him one day. Nobody's getting away with anything. Nobody's escaping anything. No believer in Jesus Christ is getting away with wrongs just because they're believers. Everything is still going to be brought into accountability one day. And it's important for me to think, when I stand there one day, how do I want to be accountable to my relation to other people, to my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ? Am I going to look at the same things the same way? Or am I going to look at them very differently from that position? And Paul wants to challenge these believers here that, look, I don't have to be the judge of anybody else. The, the life that I live, I live to the Lord. And one day we're all going to stand before him personally. Proverbs says the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. He knows it all. And he's challenging us about our present judgment and interaction and contempt for brothers and sisters in Christ. How am I going to look at it when I stand before the throne then? And he quotes from Isaiah, saying it's to these believers, it is, notice, they shall bow to me and they shall confess to God. That twofold there. All the bowing and all the confession goes to God, not to another human being, not to somebody else who was in an argument over what day they should worship on or what they should or shouldn't be eating. All of that is going to be before the Lord. So first off, I'm giving an account of myself. And I don't have to be worried about whether somebody else needs to give an account, because that's what always happens. Yeah, but they're, they're just getting away. Don't worry about what they're doing. What are you going to do when you stand before Jesus Christ one day? You have an appointment, a face-to-face meeting with Jesus that you're not going to escape. When you stand before him and you are accountable, when I stand before him and I am accountable, in the light of that day, how do I want to have acted? Essentially, that day becomes the true and final measure of my life. Because after that judgment, I'm with him in eternity. That, that's the day where everything gets put back in its proper place. Paul talked about that day, and he wasn't afraid of it. He said there was a crown there for him. He had fought a good fight. He finished his course. He was ready for that day. You and I should have the same confidence, but our focus, instead of other people's accountability, should first be our personal accountability. Then secondly, you notice verse 12, Each of us shall give an account of himself to God. That's the first one. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. The first thing I think about is my own accountability. The second thing I think about is my brother's well-being. 
Am I doing something to harm somebody else? Are my actions tripping up someone else? I'm supposed to live in light of the well-being of my brethren. Am I a help to them? Or am I causing them to stumble? Are, are the other believers around me blessed and encouraged and edified? Or not? Am I throwing things in their path that destroy them? You know, it's, it's, it's an incredible blessing to have a believer enter into your life that becomes an encouragement. We all know what that is, whether it's a friend or a family friend or somebody who comes into your relationship through marriage or whatever it is, you, you have people brought into your life that are godly that become incredible blessings. And we also can see what happens when somebody comes into somebody's life and their life turns into a train wreck after that relationship. Am I the type of person who cares whether I'm putting stumbling blocks in front of other believers? I should be thinking about those things because there was this insistence on these lesser things in terms of food, worship, days uh, of festivals, it can happen with speculative points of theology. People have their shibboleths, so you got to say this the way we say it. Otherwise, you're kind of out here. And there's all different types of ways that people can just use lesser things to become stumbling blocks for other people's lives. That's not what Paul is saying should happen in the body of Christ. We should be received, not the doubtful things. God has already received us. And we're his servants, and we give accountability to him and him alone, and we live our lives for, before, and to him. And it's not to one another. And, and if I'm worried somebody's in the wrong and they're getting away with stuff, no, they're not. Because they have their day, and they can't escape it. So he wants to continue here to press this, where he says, verse 14, I know... And I am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. And he's not talking about cooking. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drink, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. So Paul again, right off the bat, he says, "I know and I'm convinced by the Lord Jesus in 14 that there is nothing unclean of itself." He knew that there was no longer any dietary law. He was convinced of that. By Jesus Christ himself, no less. He had taught him that. Paul had eaten with the Gentiles. Can't get more sure than Jesus Christ himself teaching you. It's okay. Go have some barbecue with those guys. It's not going to defile you. I'm not going to be displeased with you. Again, it was very hard for them. Even the Apostle Peter, we know this story when he had the vision and the sheet was let down and there was animals there and the Lord said, kill and eat. And he said, Lord, I can't do that. He's, he's still Peter, and Jesus is still Jesus. He has to be like, no, you can. Kill and eat, Peter. What did I just say to you? Don't call unclean what I have said is clean. 
that they were still working through these things. We know Peter got corrected by Paul at one point where he was doing that and then all of a sudden stepped back when other people came. He wasn't working off of his inner convictions anymore. He was allowing outside influence to choose what was right between him and the Lord. His faith became weak. And you and I, we all have our things like this. Paul says, I know what's right. Yet even so, he realizes anyone who's not convinced, he says, but to him who considers anything unclean, to him it is unclean. Anybody who truly desires to please God, but but believes something is unclean, then to him it's sin. So to insist on his liberties would be, in fact, ending up wounding that person. It would not be living life in love as Christ did. It wouldn't be encouraging. Could Christ literally come down into our world, live a life and a death so full of self-denial that we really can't even imagine it? Die on that cross, ascend into heaven, do all that for us. He's like, and you can't take the bacon out of your sandwich for your brother in Christ? Right? Like that's, it's, it's the insistence on this thing here because you're theologically right. They says you're no longer walking in love. I know uh, Christians who came out of Muslim backgrounds and um, as a Muslim, you can't have bacon. You stay away from pigs. Pig's blood is unclean, and it was still incredibly hard for them to have bacon. In fact, we'd be like, can we have your bacon? And he, he was all right if we had it, right? But he, he could not, this friend of mine, he could not do that. And it was still something that was just, he was young in Christ. He couldn't, couldn't get past that thing. It was so kind of ingrained in him. And we didn't argue with him or force him to do it. And Paul no doubt had numerous occasions where he's teaching believers, they're just saved, he's in their house, and they're presenting him food, and it might, it might have all been vegetarian. And Paul wasn't like, I got a bologna sandwich in my pocket just in case this happened. I'm going to eat this and teach you why theologically it's okay for me. No, he's like, you're not walking in love anymore. Don't you understand this? There's no, there's no sense in the insistence of the issue here. We do real positive harm to other believers. So that's why he says, if you're no longer walking in love, don't destroy with your food one for whom Christ died. Therefore, you let your good be even evil spoken of. Christ died for this individual. How are you going to wound them with something so much lesser then? You have to understand what's happening here, that there's larger issues happening. And the, the word for destroy, it's not, some people take that as like a, an, uh, a loss of salvation type thing. It's not speaking about salvation here. What he's speaking about is the reality of faith and a good conscience. And the word for destroy has the idea of ruining something or rendering it useless. Jesus uses the word when he tells the parable about the wineskins. And if you put the new wine in the old wineskin, it'll burst and it will be ruined. It will be destroyed. And what Paul is saying is you're ruining the faith of other Christians. You're ruining their conscience. You're hurting their relationship with God by insisting on moving them to a place where God has not moved them. You do harm to them when you can easily just give up that right. This isn't the type of thing. He's not talking about 
the cross or the essentials of the faith. He's talking about simple freedoms, doubtful things that, that really, these are not things worth fighting over. And they, the dietary law, the Sabbaths, the festivals, these are things that there was a lot of fighting over happening in the church. And we have our own versions of these things. Certainly, you know, there, there's all different types of ideas in, in the modern world. You can just basically think, what do you think some other believers shouldn't do or should do? And you can just fill it in, right? I remember years ago when I was growing up, it was like when Harry Potter first came out. Everybody's like, can a Christian read Harry Potter? Well, I, I bet if you came out of a pagan background, then you really shouldn't read Harry Potter. That wounds your spirit. If there was other people that it didn't, like, okay. It could be alcohol. It could be various forms of entertainment. The thing, you know, some of these things are still around. Sometimes the dietary law, the worshiping and Sabbath, there's, there's still places where these things pop up. But the reality is we have to be very careful. We can't force the work of the Holy Spirit in somebody else's life. I cannot force them to become more mature. I cannot force them to accept some type of theology. We as a pastor, I have to be very careful. We, we often want to race people past things, right? We want to race them into the grace of God when really the Holy Spirit is working godly sorrow in that person's life. And it's not my job to hurry them past that. Nor maybe is it my job to hurry them past God's discipline in their life. We, we want to see ourselves or what we think molded upon other people in places where really we don't have a place to tell them that 100%. And what Paul is saying, in those places, you need to give a little space. You need to have a different means of working through this than just, are you theologically correct? Because you can be right and still be wrong. You could be right about whether you can eat food or not and wrong in the way you're interacting with your brother. Because you're no longer walking in love and you're actually destroying their faith. Because what God cares about right now is how they exercise their conscience before him not whether they understand what you're talking about. And that's why he says the kingdom of God, it's not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's not in the non-essentials. I don't know I'm in the kingdom of God simply because of how I drink. I know I'm in the kingdom of God because the Holy Spirit is working in my life in love and righteousness and peace and joy. That's how I know the kingdom of God is real in my life. Not just when I'm theologically correct. One author said, you have a lot of loud theological talkers and low spiritual walkers. Yeah. We don't want to be found in that segment. We know what he's talking about. That there's a character of Christ that isn't displayed. To live in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit is the type of life that is well-pleasing to God. That's what he says here. Those are things that are acceptable to God, and they become approved of men. You see it. And there's always a challenge. A, a greater maturity in Christ, some people think they're more mature in Christ because they know things. A greater maturity in Christ, the more mature spiritually a person is, they are also proportionally humble and loving and Christ-like. 
And Christ was not just trying to create a segment of really spiritual, serious people. Because he never would have had any disciples then. Because they were a mess at first. And they grew. They started very weak in faith. And he rebuked them about that. Oh, you have little faith. Numerous times. But they grew. They learned. He gave them the space to do that. And they recognized his godly life. And he does the same with us. And he's doing the same today in the body of Christ. He receives all. The spiritually mature that are spiritually mature. The spiritually mature who just think they're spiritually mature. And the spiritually immature. They're received in him. But we have to remember who's really accountable. And he says, this is, this is how you'll see the kingdom of God working out. In this character. Therefore, verse 19, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which we may edify one another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. He says, okay, here's the aim. Let's pursue, and that's a strong word for pursue. Let's actively, hard pursue the things which make for peace and which edify one another. Don't pursue the things that you're going to argue with about. Some people like being a provocateur, right? We all have this friend who just wants to throw a little dynamite in the conversation and watch it explode. But this is, that's what Paul's saying. Now, don't do that. Let's pursue the things that actually edify one another, that build one another up, and instead of stirring up judgment and contempt, how, how about we stir up this godly character? So I don't use my food in a way that is going to cause an issue. He says, I understand to, to the pure all things are pure. That's wonderful. It is good if, if you can have those things, but it's also good, he says, if I know these things are stumbling my brother, then not to do those things. Because that reveals the life of Christ. Again, uh, there's plenty of opportunities for us to love one another, to be patient with one another, to help a young believer along and to be careful with them. I can think of plenty of scenarios where I had freedoms that other people might not have. Uh, and for you and I, these things will always pop up. And it's important that we keep the right attitude, not just, again, the right theological positions. Again, you could, by example, you could be pleasing to Christ by surrendering the public act of drinking alcohol, which is literally one of the most destructive forces in societies all around the world. And I do that to love and protect others. But... We can't despise the brothers and sisters in Christ who aren't in the place to take the same stand. That's, that's just the reality. This character of Christ extends love toward those who need it, and it also extends patience with those who are growing. It's not self-focused. It's God-focused. I'm not self-conscious. I'm God-conscious. And I'm looking, God, what is your eyes for this person? What is your eyes for this scenario, for this other brother or sister in Christ? 
The mature and the immature both have a role to play, not just a position to take. So he finishes with this, which I think is a good summation. I think it's very helpful in terms of measuring our liberties. He says, do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. This, he says, do you have faith? Great. Have it between yourself and the Lord. It is a blessing if you can live a life where your conscience is clear because it's been exercised between you and the Lord. It's a blessing for Paul. He knows this. Not to live under the dietary law anymore, but to have his conscience clear and then to eat his burger with cheese and, and not have to be worried about breaking the dietary law. That's, it was, that's a blessing. He says, great, have that between you and the Lord. That's a wonderful thing. Enjoy that. You should have that harmony and strong faith. We have to live by faith and we live it before the Lord. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatsoever is not from faith is sin. He says, but there's a problem here. It, whatever is not of faith is sin. It's never right for me to ignore my conscience before God. It's never right for me to continue in anything doubtful. If this thing, if I'm wondering if this thing is sin, it's never right for me to continue in that. I can't live my life willing to displease God. Does that make sense? Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. If I'm a Christian and my conscience, if my desire is truly to please God and my conscience is questioning something, not only should I not just do that thing, because if I do that thing, I'm doing something that could possibly be displeasing to God, and it's not pleasing to God to be willing to displease him. By example, if I said to my wife, I think I remember you saying you don't really like sushi. So for Valentine's Day, I booked this sushi place for us. She would be very confused. Why? Because why are you telling me you're willing to do something that you think might be displeasing to me? I know, I thought you might not really like this, but I bought it for you. That's not a way we can live human life. You understand? You don't do that with any other normal human being. So what Paul is saying is, whatsoever is not a faith is sin. I can't act like I'm worried about this thing and then just go and do it. And you can't force a believer against their conscience. That's the thing. If your conscience is great, great. Have that between you and the Lord. Don't try to push somebody else into a scenario where they're worried they're going to be displeasing to God in something that is one of these doubtful areas. And and we have to make sure, again, he says, do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. We have to make sure, again, we are exercising our consciences before God alone. I I shouldn't do anything because I'm afraid not to. I go to church because I'm just afraid what people will think of me if I don't go to church anymore. That, what I've done is I've taken all my motives for life and I've moved them outside of God into people. That, that's not where I live my life. That's not where I'm accountable. 
I don't just do things because the, the Christian culture around me likes those things or dislikes those things. I am supposed to have faith before God individually. A.W. Tozer would say this in his book of God and Men. The great fault in all of this is that it shifts the life motivation from within to without, from God to our fellow man. Any act done because we are afraid not to do it is of the same moral quality as an act that is not done because we are afraid to do it. Fear, not love and faith, dictates the conduct, and whatsoever is not of faith is sin. I can't tell people what to do all the time. We, we have an epidemic of that in our culture because we have, I think, so much communication. Everybody thinks they should be able to tell everybody else what to do. I'll give an example here. I had a lady call in before, and she wanted to ask a question. She had a job offer as a nurse to work on a floor that did abortions. She would not be doing the abortions, but she was worried she might be doing something displeasing to the Lord. How involved was she going to be? Is she complicit in what's happening there? And she wanted me to tell her what to do. And what I said to her was, nobody can tell you what to do. Here's what I can tell you. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. If I tell you it's cool and you can go and do it and God's all right with it because you're not doing the abortions and you go there and your conscience is killing you every day, I have wounded you. And if I tell you to stay back and there's not another job provided for you, you're going to be like, that idiot made me lose my job. I said, you have to know that what you're doing is what God told you to do. So I can tell her, here are some passages you can think about. Here is where this needs to be worked out for you. But often we want our decisions made for us. And we might even go to godly people. I should call them pastor. We, we, we want somebody to just help us work through these things. We, we might even like it if somebody, just tell me what to do. Sometimes people say, just tell me what to do. No. I'm not going to tell you what to do, because if I do, I can wound your conscience. Because, this is really important, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. I can't tell you what to do in this scenario. I don't know what God has for you. What God has for you is for you to learn how to exercise your conscience before him and him alone, irrespective of anybody else. That's, that's what he's doing in your life. He's building your faith. And all of us are going to be in this scenario and all of us are going to have friends that are going to come to us in these similar scenarios. And it's important that we know if I do not point them the right direction, I can actually be harmful to them. I can wound their face, even if I have the right theological bent, per se. But this person's conscience is not able to receive those things yet. Then I need to give God space to work in their life. Because they're his, not mine. And they're going to be accountable before him one day, not me. And whatsoever is not of faith is sin. If I can't walk in faith, then I shouldn't go that direction. I, sh I can read the word. Again, I can be taught literally. Paul isn't saying this is some secret we keep. He is saying this directly to these people. You need to learn this lesson. 
to the immature they're learning it and to the mature they're learning it. But in the end, you're, you're going to be happy if you learn to have faith before God. You. Not, not the faith that your Christian community has or that your church has or your denomination has or your creed has. But your heart before him. Because if you condemn yourself and what you approve, it becomes something evil in your life. And whatsoever is not a faith is sin. I can't live my life if I really want to be pleasing to God, willing to displease him. I have to live my life doing my best to remain in the place that is most pleasing to him. And you know what? Even if I'm a little immature in how that looks, God has patience with me. And he'll work me along the way. And if I'm mature, I need to be very careful how I interact with somebody who's less mature than me. Because I need to know that they are working out their faith between the Lord themselves and not just basing it on me or anybody else. So this is a, an important, um, I think, rule for us. As we listen and hear and give our thoughts to other people as people act, we always want to get people back to Jesus Christ. And make sure that they're interacting between him and them. And that's the center of how they're making those decisions. And if we can do that, then there's great happiness. It's wonderful to have harmony of heart and conscience before the Lord. It's a gift and something that's pleasing to him. So let's stand. We're going to pray. I would just encourage you, if you're here tonight, I'm sure there's some people here that are wrestling over some things, you're wondering some things, thinking about certain decisions. Um, maybe you're even going to be like, man, I was going to ask you tonight, but now I know you're not going to tell me anything, so I'm not going <laughs> to. Well, okay, then I encourage you, just pray and ask the Lord. And if you want to just come out and say, just pray for me as I work through this, that's cool. Right? Any of us can do that, or grab a friend, another brother and sister in Christ, and ask them to do the same before you leave. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are so patient to walk with us. Thank you that you don't break a bruised reed or quench that smoking flax. You see your own life in us, and you fan it to flame. And Lord, I just pray that any of my brothers and sisters here tonight that are struggling through something, Lord, I pray that you would minister to them, give them your wisdom. You said you give wisdom liberally to any man who asks. So I pray that you would allow them to have a clean conscience before you. And Lord, I pray that we would be a fellowship where we openly receive one another as you receive us pursuing the things that edify one another, loving and walking in the way of love, bearing those fruits of righteousness in your Holy Spirit. So allow that to be true of us, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.